0: mentioned last week that my intention this morning is to just give a review of what we've learned in the um, sermon series about church and church membership and so I'm going to read the text in Ephesians 3 verses 14 through 21 but because I I hate the prospect of getting up here and giving a lecture, but this morning is going to be more of a lecture than it is uh, a sermon. But I want to read the text as a reminder of why we're here. So let me say a few words explaining the passage before we read it, and then after we read it, we'll move on to a more topical discussion. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. He wrote a letter which is more ecclesiological than most. And that word's describing, it's more about church and church truth than some of his other letters. It says more about the nature of the church, the encouragement uh, for a church. He wrote to them about the salvation in Jesus coming completely through the sovereign grace of God. He encouraged them to be like-minded in the church, dropping all the notions of uh, clickishness. If you remember when we went through Ephesians, we, we said that one of the main themes of Ephesians is that every, every pe- all the people whom Jesus has reconciled to God, he's also reconciled to one another. And so here at the end of Ephesians 3, starting at verse 14, it records his prayer for the church at Ephesus, and by extension, all churches. And so as you listen to this text, or if you follow along with me, I want you to note how Paul says that through Christ we are children of God the Father in heaven. We are strengthened by the Holy Spirit of God. Our hearts are the dwelling place of Jesus Christ, God's Son. We've been made recipients of a love that passes Understanding, he actually describes that love in four dimensions. As a church, we know God is able to do more than we ever would ask or even think to ask, and He has placed His power at work in us for His glory in the church. It exists in every day that it exists, it exists for the glory of God and all that it does. Ephesians 3, verse 14 through 21. For this reason, What is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes understanding that you may be filled with all the fullness of God now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do ask your blessings on this service today. We ask that you would just give us attentive uh, minds, that we have open hearts, that we would uh, engage with your word and that we would do it for your glory. We ask, Lord, that you would please bless the reading of your word and the teaching of it, that you would um, use your Holy Spirit to... uh, teach us and to to give us a desire and an ability to glorify you in all things. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So this is the 20th and final sermon in our church membership series. That is not to say we've exhausted all of the potential topics. If anyone has a question about the nature of the church or what is expected of church members, I will be glad to address it. I'm always open to whatever questions you have, but just a brief review of of where we're at and why we're where we're at. Starting about three and a half years ago, I mentioned in a church business meeting that our membership role of a church needs to be addressed. In some ways, a formal role had not been maintained or updated for many years. And among other concerns, the church had not put in Effort to maintain a membership role that reflected a present active church membership and that discussion was kicked around for a little while in the middle of last year August of 2022 I presented what appeared to be the most up-to-date membership list it included some 300 names some had clearly moved some had died some had just stopped attending some were in need of disciplinary action. Many were present and are still present and faithful and active, but after addressing the most obvious issues, we now have a list of about 130. I really wish they were all here this morning. Um, at that point the more serious work needed to be done, and it's the goal of the church is to glorify God and be guided by his word in all that we do. I began this series on what a church is and what church membership is. And you may remember it had a very odd beginning. We started with a sermon that had 44 texts, and it only had 44 texts because I pared it down from 50-something references of all of the one another passages in the New Testament. There were 44 different texts and different context different main ideas but all kept using that phrase one another and so you see in your notes some of those references be at peace with one another serve one another be kindly affection to one another and prefer one another be of the same mind with one another be like-minded toward one another. To the extent of having one mind and one mouth, the church is to have full hearted agreement and speak with a single voice. Receive one another like Christ received us. Admonish or instruct one another. Greet one another with a holy kiss. We still haven't picked up on that one, right? Uh, look, a, hand, a handshake will do. The idea is whatever customary greeting you use gather with one another and greet one another and make sure as you're greeting one another you're doing it in holiness agree with one another that is don't have divisions care for one another restore one another bear one another's burdens forbear one another in other words tolerate one another in love be kind to one another tender hearted and forgiving speak with one another and sing with one another and give thanks with one another and submit to one another. Admonish one another. Abound in love toward one another. Comfort one another. Edify. Build up one another. Be at peace with one another. Exhort or encourage one another. Consider one another. Provoke each other not to anger, but to love and good works. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves with one another. Do not begrudge one another or speak evil of one another. Confess your faults to one another. Love one another with a pure heart fervently. And I love that word fervently that Peter uses in 1 Peter 1.22. It's a word that means in some contexts ferociously. Love one another ferociously. Have compassion on one another. Display hospitality to one another. Be subject or submit to one another have fellowship with one another and and then about a dozen different times simply love one another love one another jesus says as i have loved you the one anotherness to which we are called is compassionate and loving and involved it requires close quarters fellowship It, it demands that we know one another and encourage each other and teach each other That one anotherness is not accomplished with a name written on a piece of paper and it's stored in some folder for 20 years until it gets opened up and everybody's surprised to see the name there. It demands assembling together and worshiping together and learning together and and speaking with the same voice together. So there were many texts and many contexts all with one underlying simple truth, the idea of anyone being a Christian Christian. But not an active participant in a community of faith known as a church is entirely foreign to the New Testament. Being a born again child of God is not something that you can freelance. You cannot be obedient to the Lord Jesus unless you're obedient to Him in the church, practicing faith with one another. So, next in the series, we talked about the nature of the church. The primary text was from. Matthew chapter 16, turn with me there if you would. Matthew chapter 16, starting at verse 13 through verse 21. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say. John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. And from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised the third day. What We saw in that text, and it's still there, is the very first reference to the word church in scripture. And it comes after this affirmation of the disciples that they are the ones who see Jesus for who he is. He's not just a good teacher he's not just a a nice guy he's not just another prophet he is the promised messiah the very son of god and in response to that profession of faith in him jesus said that all those who know him are blessed and it appears his intention is for all those who know him to be part of a community of faith because he says i will build my church that is, a church is an institution built by Jesus, and it is his church, meaning that it is built by Jesus and for Jesus. It's on the foundation of Jesus alone. And you know there, Lord, the Lord uses this play on words with Peter. Peter's name means little stone, and Jesus says, but on, on this rock, this large, massive precipice, I'm going to build my church. That rock is Jesus himself. This thing called a church which Jesus promised to build, and by the way, promises success because he says the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. This church is an assembly. The very meaning of this word, ecclesia, is assembly. Not only does that make a lot of sense by the definition of the word, it also makes a lot of sense by the, the very commands that we've just talked about with all the one-anotherness that is demanded. There is, this, there is this togetherness that is expected from disciples of Jesus. We cannot go it alone. We need one another. So the church Jesus builds has very little to do with the way that the, the world uses the word church today. Church is not a denomination, right? The, the Catholic Church, the Methodist Church, or even the Baptist Church, that isn't, isn't designed to bring God glory through Jesus. That's not what he's ta- saying here. It's not a building... Right? The Lord Jesus may very well have learned carpentry from his adoptive father Joseph in the first 30 years of his life. But he's not here describing picking up a hammer and nails and lumber and constructing a building. A church is not a building. It's not that service that happens on either side of Sunday school. Right? Okay, Sunday school's over. Now it's time for church. That's not what church is. Church is not an event it is an ecclesia. It is an assembly, at whatever building, at whatever time, at what, in, under whatever name, a church is not a church unless it assembles. We went on to describe some of the attributes of that church. A church practices the two ordinances described in the New Testament: a baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism is required for church membership because it is a profession of faith in the good news of jesus by an individual right and we're not talking about just any baptism but baptism of a believer as an expression of their faith in jesus under the church's authority under the the uh uh under the water right by submersion The church carries the gospel forward through the message of baptism as every member identifies themselves in baptism with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as their only hope for salvation. The other ordinance of the church is the Lord's Supper. This is an ordinance that is a a collective proclamation of the gospel. It is a church ordinance for church members as the church assembles it declares the gospel by remembering the shed blood and the broken body of the Lord Jesus. Further, the church declares that its hope is in the return of Jesus. As the Apostle Paul says, as oft as you do this, you do show the Lord's death until he comes. The church is also maintained in its health by the proclamation of the Word of God in two ways. The preaching and teaching of the Bible expositionally, that is letting the text speak. We do this because we recognize that the Bible is the inspired Word of God which is good for us, for doctrine and reproof for correction for instruction and righteousness that is it is god's word alone that tells us what to believe and what not to believe and how to behave and how not to behave and he goes on in that text in in second timothy 3 verse 17 to say that we are complete we are thoroughly furnished or completely equipped The, the word of god is sufficient for us and our needs We also noted in regard to the Bible that the Lord's Church is is maintained uh, in its health by good biblical theology. Biblical theology is the understanding that all of the Bible is telling one grand overarching story. So that all of the Bible's stories and its song and its history and, and, and its prophecy are just parts of the overall story of God's redemption through Jesus Christ. Also in the series, we learned about the expectations and demands of church members. Members of a church are encouraged to build each other up by actively engaging in healthy relationships defined by clear biblical principles. The first duty, and far from the only one, is attendance. Look, if any of y'all are about to give or get Christmas presents that say some assembly required. I wish we could stick that label on every member of a church. There is assembly that's required. Hebrews 10 verses 22 through 25 says this, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now, not, not to re preach that, but just to review it. Part of drawing near to God. And part of holding fast an unwavering confession of faith requires us to be considerate of one another, provoking one another, stirring up love and good works with one another, and assembling together. This is one of those few things that we can say has become, oddly enough, even more true in the passing 2,000 years the writer of hebrews says as the day approaches as the day of christ's return approaches we even are in more need of assembling together and exhorting and encouraging one another y'all while church attendance is not the be all end all of righteousness it does have an effect your church attendance has an effect on your fellow church members you how faithfully you attend is either encouraging or discouraging to the other people in the church. Next, we saw every member of a church is gifted by the Holy Spirit to serve in the church. Paul in his letters repeatedly explains through this this through the analogy of the the church being a body, it's the body of Christ and each church member is a particular part of that body making us each unique and necessary in 1 first corinthians 12 he says the eye can't say to the hand i don't need you and the head can't say to the feet i don't need you right if if every body part was the same the church would be unable to function because we need the differences within the assembly in order to function as the body should but without the active participation of every body part, the church doesn't function right. And so he says in Romans 12, verses 4 through 6, as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having then gifts according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. So there are many spiritual gifts, things like administration and and teaching and mercy and encouragement and all of them are necessary within the church to be used in love. We continued on to learn that each gift is, is given by the Holy Spirit according to his own wisdom, each of us is gifted differently, but there are expectations within the church that even though every church member has a a variety, there are differences in gifts, there are some things which are expected of every member of the assembly alike. And so every member of the church is expected to express generosity in giving, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. As each one purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Christian giving isn't because someone is compelled, it's because you are willing. It isn't in order to earn God's favor, it's an expression of God's grace. Generous giving occurs as a result of prioritizing the Lord Jesus in your life and knowing that everything comes from him. And so, everything belongs to Him. So whatever part of your paycheck you give, no matter how big the number on the check is you put in the box back there, if you're giving a big offering but you are withholding some part of your life, it is not enough. Don't be fooled into thinking that God's willing to accept what's yours. He requires all of you. Christian giving reflects the confident belief the Lord Jesus purchased you completely. And he owns your life and your strength and your eternal soul and your weekly paycheck. And so uh, 2 Corinthians 9, 15, Paul ends that section by saying, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. We are all to similarly participate in corporate worship. One of my favorite passages in the series was actually on the topic of worship. We learned that worship is sacrifice. Worship is a participation sport. It is not an, uh, a passive observation. The writer of Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews 13 verse 15. Therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. So think of Old Testament saints. If they were going to worship, what was required of them? Good sacrifice to God made made possible only through Christ's ultimate sacrifice for us. We saw that every member is needed to carry out the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, says, Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Just note three things about that quickly by declaring the gospel as a church we are submitting to the authority of jesus he begins by claiming that authority right all authority is given to me in heaven and earth and then starting at verse 19 we learn by declaring the gospel we fulfill the command of jesus because he has that authority he says go therefore go is a is a command it's not a a recommendation or an option it is a command based on his authority make disciples baptize those disciples disciple the word there literally means teach teach those disciples and then by declaring the gospel we embrace the continuing presence of jesus right i am with you always even until the end of the age and so also in this series, we kind of drill down into that idea of discipleship or that idea of discipline. It seems like an odd connection, the Great Commission and church discipline, but it's right there in the Great Commission, right? Make disciples, that word disciple and the word discipline are related to each other, they're connected. And discipline begins, as we noted, discipline is not just exclusion. That's usually the way we use the word discipline, but it's not right. Discipline begins with discipleship. Teach them to observe all the things I've commanded you, Jesus says. So before we even got to the topic of church discipline, the way we use the term, we we learn from Hebrews 12 that discipline is the natural and necessary expression of loving authority Just to to quote a portion of that text as a reminder, Hebrews 12, 5 through 7. Have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons? My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there? whom a father does not chasten. And so discipline includes teaching, it includes correction, it also includes some structured enforcement of expectations. And if you want to see how loving authority acts, you can look at parents who love their children enough to discipline them, or you can look at a church that loves its members enough to discipline them, or best yet, you can look to our Heavenly Father who the writer of Hebrews says expresses his love through discipline, sometimes through difficult and painful lessons. After seeing that discipline is the reflection of the loving authority of God himself, we looked at Jesus' commands in regard to discipline. In Matthew 18, he develops a kind of flow chart which guides his church and In practicing discipline, I know that you know that text, right? If your brother sins against you privately, go to him privately. If he persists, then take one or two others. If he still persists, then take it to the church, the assembly. And if he refuses to hear the assembly, then consider him as a heathen or a tax collector. That is if he won't listen to corrective discipline, then and only then it's necessary to exercise a kind of punitive discipline. And let's not forget the Lord Jesus promised to guide us in this. It is in that very same passage where he says you take one or two others with you, which, by the way, not a complicated math problem, right? If there's you and there's one or two others, you're talking about two or three people, And he says, because where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there in the midst of them, right? He's going to be with us as we practice discipline. And then we saw a practical example of discipline from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Please turn to 1 Corinthians 5. Again, not going to re-preach the whole chapter, but I want to remind you of a couple of notes. In 1 Corinthians 5, there is that occasion where there is a man who is um, said in verse 1 to be having a sexual affair with his father's wife. Almost certainly his stepmother. Right? And so verse 1 describes the individual's sin. Right, That man is in sin because of the things that he's doing. And that sounds like a, an extreme example. A man's having an affair with his stepmother. And it is an extreme example, but just stick with it because it's only an example. In verse 2, he goes on from the individual sin and describes the collective sin. The individual is at fault for his sin, but in verse 2, Paul describes the church is at fault for not having addressed it, for just ignoring him instead of excluding him. In verses 3 through 5, it goes back to the individual. And he describes in those verses that church discipline is actually, church discipline in the form of exclusion is, A source of hope for that individual. You can look at verse 5. Deliver such a one to Satan, but with the goal that at the end of verse 5, his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And then in verse 6 through 8, it goes back to the collective again. Church discipline in the form of exclusion of that sinful member is the church's collective hope. He says in verse 7, purge out the old leaven in order that at the end of verse 8 you can worship in sincerity and truth and it's the rest of this chapter that shows that that one sin as extreme as it is is just an obvious example the same principles apply to all sorts of issues in verses 10 and 11 sexual immorality coveting extortion idolatry revilers drunkenness right and the list could go on in short, all kinds of situations, in all kinds of situations, discipline is possibly the best source of hope for that individual and the best source of hope for the church as a whole. And then we ended the series with a couple of practical warnings for the Lord's churches. First off in 1 Corinthians 3, 9-17. through 17. The Apostle Paul admonished that church at Corinth to be careful how you build. If you remember, he said the foundation of the church is the Lord Jesus himself, but in everything we do, we're building on that foundation. And we have to genuinely examine our church to determine whether we're building on the foundation of Christ with what Paul described as essentially lasting materials. In 1 Corinthians 3 10 through 13, here's what he says. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw... Each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. We will give an account for our workmanship. Are we building with enduring resources or are we building up the church with materials that do not stand the test of time? And finally, we worked, looked last week at the warning from Jude. Jude earnestly contend for the faith if you remember Jude said this is not the letter I wanted to write but it is the letter that I needed to write because there was false teaching within the church and it wasn't false teaching that was taking place in the form of like formal lectures and sermons right it was in the form of how some church members were were living they denied the truth of God in their actions he says they are perverting the grace of God into a license for immorality and they rejected God's authority with their behavior they deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ right they claim to be his servants but they're not actually serving him and so Jude felt compelled to warn his readers to earnestly contend for the faith that was one time for all time delivered to the saints Now, I know that that's a lot at once. But here's the reason it is hard to absorb and remember 20 sermons over the course of six or seven months. But here we are at the end of the series, and this afternoon we will have a business meeting at which we will have at least some discussion about church membership. How are we going to deal with that issue? Because if we deal with that issue according to our own emotions, we might be inclined to ignore it because it just feels easier, which is exactly what has got us to the place we are now. We might be inclined to overlook discipline when we feel more connected to certain people, like we're doing our loved ones a favor by not showing them loving biblical discipline. We might be inclined to exercise discipline for those (laughs) or maybe on those with whom we're frustrated or angry, which defeats the end goal of discipline, which is the hope of restoration. Instead, we need to move forward through the application of biblical principles out of a desire to obey God and to bring Him glory through Christ Jesus in our church. Is every member of our church expressing faith in Jesus as Savior and obedience to Jesus as Lord and Master of their lives? Are they practicing those many forms of one-anotherness that are demanded of Scripture? Have they and are they participating in the ordinances of the church? Have they forsaken the act of assembling together in order to draw near to God and hold fast an unwavering profession of faith? Are they utilizing the gifts of the Holy Spirit as members connected to the body of Christ in order to build up and edify the body of Christ? Are we all engaging in generous giving and corporate worship and carrying the gospel to the world? Have we been careful of how we build the church? Are we earnestly contending for the historic faith that was delivered to the saints because unless we are obeying God and serving God according to scripture, how can we think that we're bringing glory to God through the church? Or expect the church to experience the blessings of obedience from God in return? There are biblical principles that we have to put into practice. And, and like Jude said last week, like there's, there's a letter I didn't want to write. And there's a sermon you don't want to preach. And there are sometimes actions that we don't want to take, but they are necessary and right.